Is there a truck driver right now waiting in a line somewhere who has the idea of, you know, I could do this better. I know the next step, how to make this a better idea, you know, and there's no telling because that's what generated it for McLean. He had to wait in a line in Red Hook, New York in 1937, offloading cotton bales. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And 20 years later, he comes up with the idea of the container ship and invests in it and, and changes our world. Sal Mercogliano is the chair of the Department of History, Criminal Justice and Political Science at Campbell University in North Carolina. He is a former merchant mariner and the author of Fourth Arm of Defense, Sea Lift and Military Logistics During the Vietnam War. Sal is a frequent contributor to G-Captain and other maritime outlets. Lastly, he is also the brilliant host of What's Going On With Shipping on YouTube, the popular maritime show that breaks down global shipping in an exciting and informative way. In this episode, we cover how Sal got the shipping bug, the difference between working afloat and ashore, why Japan, China and Korea dominates shipbuilding, the role of US in maritime and shipping going forward, and Sal's best advice to make a great career in the industry. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited to be joined today by Sal. And Sal, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. The first question is going to be about the shipping bug, because whenever I say to people that started to get an interest in shipping, they say, oh, you get the shipping bug, you too. So if you go all the way back, how did you get your shipping bug? Well, uh, my shipping bug came back when I was a little kid. So I grew up in New York, New York City, which most people would not really associate with it, but it's a huge port. New York City is just a massive amount of ships coming in. And uh, we lived on Long Island, which is uh, right off of New York City. And my dad used to love the fish. And so we would go offshore fishing. So he had a big 30 foot sea ray. We'd go out fishing and I hated fishing. I don't eat fish. I, I, I can't stand fishing, but I love driving the boat. And that was always my thing is I would be the boat driver. I'd go out and drive the boat. And when we went 50, 100 miles offshore, you would see the ships coming in and out of Ambrose Channel. 
And so you just see these big, huge monster container ships and tankers and bulkers coming in. And to me, I always wanted to know where they're going and, 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 and what's going on with them. And that was my bug. That's what got me going about it. I'd see them out there and I wanted to be on them. And that's what I got to do. Did that for, uh, went to college for that, did that for four years, sailed for three years, worked ashore for four years. And then I was really interested in the history of the background of, of my profession. And there really wasn't a lot written about it. And I just got kind of that bug. I, I kept digging into it and couldn't find enough stuff. And you get to the point when, all right, I'm going to do more. And so went off, got a master's in maritime history and nautical archaeology, and then a PhD in military naval history. And since then, besides teaching maritime history, I teach maritime security, maritime policy. And then I've become a contributor to several outlets and uh, talking about it. And then I started my YouTube channel. If we're just going to talk a bit about uh, the industry, because many people work with the oceans from a land perspective, but have never been out in operations. Can you talk a bit about the experience you get or the lessons you learn when you are actually in the oceans and actually have a work outside? Because that seems like that's hard to teach, it seems like, because you sort of have to been there, experienced it to truly understand how it works. Yeah, it's, you know, it's very two different separate worlds. And it's really interesting because because the shipboard versus the uh, the seaboard life is a lot different. And to tell you the truth, the shipboard is much more focused on the daily operation. It's it's getting the ship from point A to point B. It's the offloading, loading. It's very immediate, you know, and, and so that focus is really utilitarian. You're working the ship. You're doing, you know, keeping the maintenance up. You're able to get it. But in truth, almost everything happens on shore side, all the planning, all the preparations. You know, you don't pull into a, a port to load without having everything figured out before you arrive. There, there's such a huge shore side infrastructure that goes into the vessels. And, you know, in the past, it's been very separate because of technology and communications. You know, once you set off from shore, it used to be the only communication you had was radio, you know, maybe a telex, basically a text, you know, you would get to the ship and that's it. Today, it's instantaneous. Today, you're in almost constant contact. You can track vessels through AIS and you can monitor and really increase the efficiency of ships. And that's one of the things we've been seeing in the shipping industry quite a bit is as ships get larger, the crews get smaller. But that shore side element becomes much more important. You know, it, it's an orchestration. When you bring a ship in a container ship with 10,000 containers and you have to offload them, that is a symphony of movement that has to be done. It's not just putting boxes in an empty slot. Everything has to be configured for port of embarkation. There, there are load compatibility issues. There's weight issues. And, you know, when you're throwing your lines on and you're tying up at a port, those cranes are coming across, you're on popping containers, you're ready for them to come off. And you don't make money when you're in port. You make money when you're at sea. You want you want to be moving. You always want to be moving. The worst thing you want to be doing is sitting off a port or tied to a berth waiting. You want to keep that ship moving. And so you have those two different areas. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is how much those two areas don't overlap. Very few people go from the ship to shore or from the shore to ship. They, they operate as almost two separate worlds. And it's very few times you'll see, you know, senior masters or engineers take that job ashore. They also don't transition very well, I'd argue. They, you know, working on a ship tends to be very fast, very quick, and a little bit more coarse, you know, you, you tend to bark orders a lot more. That doesn't always work in an office environment. That's a great point. I also think like 
when you read culture decks to shipping companies, et cetera, and they say how they behave, sometimes, at least I work for a cruise line industry, like sometimes to get that culture from a slide deck on board isn't necessarily that easy because sometimes a ship operates like a, a planet on their own, right? With strong hierarchies and also like sometimes people, sometimes some parts seems better written on paper, but in practice, it's hard to get out, right? So have you also seen like, that is also an interesting part of you know running a shipping company because it's like you said, it's not so much overlapping in terms of the different jobs to be done. Right. I, I mean, you know, a cruise company is, is a perfect example of that because not only that, you have separate areas on the cruise ship. So it's very siloed in the different areas. So you have the engine plan, you have the, the, the bridge crew, you have the hotel services. And, you know, there's always there always seems to be a little bit of distrust between the two sides. It, it's, you know, I have this great idea how to make your ship more efficient. It's like, well, what do you know? You know, you're not on board. You don't know the intricacies. And it's the same way. And, and I think one of the big things is to build that trust between each other to have that ability to show it. You know, I when I came ashore from working afloat, I had a little more credibility. I could talk about things and, and I would be asked things than someone who just maybe came right out of university, out of college, and, and they start coming up with these ideas like, hey, this is the way we did it and, and this is a smart way to do it. And, you know, I think you can do it. And I think one of the things that smart shipping companies do is they start tapping into that population, that pool of, of, of workers they have on ships and integrating them a little bit earlier into shore work. And I think that's a really key thing. We tend to keep it to so totally separate. And, you know, like I said, when you bring a master on board, you know, someone who's sailed for 20, 30 years, they're, they're not good at a group meeting. <laughs> they're just not. They tend to want to bark an order out. And this is this is the way it's going to go. And, and, you know, a lot of time on a ship, you know, you have to give a very quick order. You know, I, I sail for a long time. And, and one of the things I've had to learn how to do is really calm down my language and not be as, as salty in, in the past. And that works great on a ship when someone's life is in danger because they stepped on a line or did something that doesn't work in a meeting. And I, th I think a lot of smart companies today are looking at how can I tap into that talent that's afloat, bring that practical experience ashore, but at the same time, measure it with, okay, that sounds great on a boat, but that's not going to work on shore. We need to, this is how we need to do it. And so, you know, a lot of teamwork has to be built in between them. So true. You talked about that the vessels have become bigger and the crew become smaller. Do you see a timeline to autonomous shipping or is that miles ahead? Or do you see the trend where you say in 20 years, probably autonomous is possible or not going to happen? Well, you know, I would argue that shipping has been going toward autonomous for a long time. I, I mean, again, you know, go back. 20 years, 20 years, container ships are, you know, a third the size they are today with a third more crew on board, you know, so, you know, you go to Ever Given in the Suez, she's got 25 people on board, 24, uh, 20,000 boxes on board, you know, again, 20 years ago, you got a ship that's maybe 5,000 boxes with maybe 40 people on board, 35 people on board. And the way you do that is through a lot of autonomy. You're, you, you're, you're digitizing, you're, you're uplinking engine systems. You know, most ships today have uplinks on their main engines that send data to the manufacturer so that they're monitoring not just your engine on your ship, but they're monitoring every engine that's been built to that model. And so that they can provide services to the companies and sit there and say, hey, we've noticed this. We got to do this at the 3000 hour mark and come in. And, you know, especially when we see accidents, the high visibility accidents we saw, it's really interesting. We just had a report come out from Alliance that ship 
accidents are down by about 50% over the past 10 years. However, they're much more high visibility than we've seen in the past because of the nature of global communications. And the question becomes is how do we minimize those accidents? How do you minimize an ever given, an ever forward, an express pearl? How do you do that? And I think one of the things you'll start seeing is more and more autonomy in visualization of ships. So tracking of vessels, providing input to them, maybe even on helm control in some ways. You know, I, I joke about the fact that we still drive ships the same way we drove ships 300 years ago. You know, we still have people at the wheel. It may not be a wheel, maybe a handle, but we still do that. We're very leery to hand over control to the computer, but we know it's more efficient. We know it steers better. We know that it'll be more efficient. And a lot of that is getting that mindset, being able to switch that mindset over. I don't think we ever go completely autonomous in shipping because I think the fear is insurance. I don't think an insurance company is ever going to sign off on a ship sailing out of out of Felix Stowe heading to Savannah and just, okay, hope it gets to the other side with nobody on board. But I, I, I do see the potential for it to even decrease further in some numbers. One trend is obviously that the ships have become bigger. I read a story that said that, you know, bigger ships are more vulnerable to tough seas. Is that a myth or is it a truth that, that the bigger vessel you have, the more dangerous it is, or it's just like a fake story sort of? Well, I, you know, there's an issue with container ships that they get to a certain way of motion that, that they're, they're, there's a motion specific to container ships that can cause problems. I think the issue really is a, a matter of time. So if you look at the big container ships, we had the, the story uh, two years ago now where ONE Apis lost all those containers. And that has to do more with stowage. The fact that, listen, as we put containers higher on a vessel, you need more bracing on it, but that takes time in port. Are you going to take the additional time to put lateral cross stays on it to prevent those containers from going over? Or is your priority load them and go. And, you know, because the more, the more securing you do to a container, the longer it takes to throw it off when you get to the next port. And we're always in that risk management position. Even if you have a case like ONE Apis that loses over a thousand containers in the big scheme of things, how many containers are lost in the year versus how many containers sail? If you're talking about, you know, a couple of thousand containers lost at sea versus millions of containers moved every year, that's a fraction of the loss. Now it's terrible for the environment. There's a lot, you know, if it's your stuff going in the water, you don't like that. But no, I, I think big ships are the, the problem with the big ships are it's not so much the sailing aspect. It's coming into port. That's the problem is a lot of infrastructure hasn't kept up with the ports. You can build a new ship in two years. You can build the biggest, baddest, newest ship in two years. But if you're going to upgrade a port, that's a 10-year environment. You know, it's a long time. It's a lot of money. It's dredging. It's, you know, if you're the port of New York, you got to raise the Bayonne Bridge. That's not an easy thing. That's $1.7 billion. That's several years you have to invest in that. And then even if you get the port big enough, you got to have the road, the rail, the airhead. You got to have all that infrastructure. You know, containerization, we keep, I think this is one of the reasons why everyone's bit by the ships right now because they realize it's a component in a larger system. It's not just a single thing where you're bringing cargo from one port to another port. You've got to get it out of the port. That's LA and Long Beach. We always thought, I had a lot of people when LA and Long Beach were in the 
the prime when there was a hundred ships off LA and Long Beach. And I'd have that question, you know, what's wrong with the ships? Like there's nothing wrong with the ships. The ships are great. They're efficient. They're fast. The problem is the ports can't keep up. You can't clear it out of the ports into the warehouses, the distribution centers. And that's the thing we need to look at this whole transportation issue holistically. You got to look at all parts. You can't just look at one part. So true. So I know you love history. So I thought I would ask this question. If you were to produce or if you have had to produce a movie based on the maritime or shipping industry, what's the opening scene and what's the movie about? Wow, that's a that's a really good one. You know, I, I actually think one one of the problems in the industry is it doesn't get the, the the public attention that it does. The only time it ever gets attention is disasters. You know, it's 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 the disaster movie. It's 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 Captain Phillips getting grabbed by Somali pirates. It's, you know, it's all these different elements. And I think one of the things that we're missing here is, is how good media can be for uh, an industry. I would argue that in the 1970s, 80s, the love boat did more for the cruise ship industry than anything else in, in many ways. So if I think if you're, you're going to make a movie and you want to talk about it, I think one of the things that I would really focus on, because again, you got to get a good story is a story of World War II, is, is maybe of, of a, a typical ship that sailed the ocean and, and, and covered it, you know, and, and you know, the, the focus always tends to be these big convoy battles, but that's not the, the truth. You know, I think the story, you know, to use, you know, the example of the Norwegian merchant marine and the fact how they fought throughout World War II, you know, and, you know, even when their nation was occupied, they were they were a bedrock force that was used. Maersk lines, you know, fled from Denmark and operated under the U.S., for a long time, you know, and I think it's, it's more than the Greyhound story that Tom Hanks did with one convoy battle, but that, you know, the fact that a lot of those mariners, especially those mariners who were displaced from home, they lived on the ships. There was no getting off. They were on the ships for, you know, until the war was won in many cases. And I think that story would be a, a really interesting one beyond just because it has adventure, it has excitement in it, but at the same time too, it conveys that important link in the success of World War II that was borne by all the merchant Marines that fought uh, against uh, the Axis powers in World War II. So, I mean, that, that would be the story I would tend to look at. I would definitely watch that movie. I just thought <laughs> another example is that if you, if you think about people who are sort of undervalued or their story aren't that much known, I also thought about the, uh, the guy who basically invented the box. There's a great book written about the box, right? But that's also a story. How many people know that story? And, you know, the impact that had actually figuring out, okay, let's change the whole system into one container box. Well, Malcolm McLean is a great one. I mean, I live in North Carolina, just 50 miles from where he grew up. I mean, where he was born in Maxton, uh, North Carolina. And, you know, I, what I always love about that story is he wasn't a shipping guy. He was a truck driver, you know, and, and to me, that's the utilitarian aspect. You know, he came up with a problem is like, OK, I, I'm not in the ships. I'm in the moving cargo. Let me figure out the best way to move cargo and let me do it. And that's, you know, in the United States where we've seen the decline of our merchant marine, I always make the argument that the, the, the guy like Malcolm McLean, you got to think Malcolm McLean, when he creates the, the, the container ship, he, his ship, his name is the SS Ideal X and the ILD. Ideal X changes the shipping industry. I always equate him to Elon Musk and SpaceX. How does McLean get you to Musk? How does Ideal X get you to SpaceX? What's that innovation? Now, is SpaceX going to revolutionize shipping in the next 
you know, space shipping in the next 20 years? Probably not, because it took a while for McLean to get container. Containerization wasn't the success everybody think it is. It took a long time. It was a big infrastructure. You had to buy a lot of boxes, all that ports, all those cranes. Took a lot. And I keep wondering today with our supply chain issues, is there a truck driver right now waiting in a line somewhere who has the idea of, you know, I can do this better. I know the next step, how to make this a better idea, you know, and there's no telling because that's what generated it for McLean. He had to wait in a line in Red Hook, New York in 1937, offloading cotton bales. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And 20 years later, he comes up with the idea of the container ship and invests in it and, and changes our world. You know, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the, the great, great book by Mark Levinson, The Box, and then his follow on book, uh, Beyond the Box, really talks about how we have changed global shipping since the end of World War II. Uh, so true. If you look at shipping, it seems like it's a bit of a mystery around it because right now, for instance, we have the Davos gathering where you have the Ray Dalios, the Jamie Diamonds, et cetera. And you don't really have those figures in shipping, but and probably a lot of reasons for that. We can come into that, of course. But do you feel like this mystery is a feature or a bug for the industry? I, I think I think it deals with a couple of things. Number one, I think the maritime industry is is very what, what we call siloed. It's within its own. And, and they do a very poor job, in my opinion, of talking outside their industry. And a lot of industries are like that. But I think the maritime industry is particularly true about this. They, they, they cannot communicate outside. And they're also leery to communicate because usually the only time people want to talk to them is disasters or, or something bad's happening. They don't want to talk to them about successes. And I think that's a flaw. Let me be clear. I, I think one of the things that they need to do is take it, even when there's a disaster, is, is spin it so that they can talk about how it's a positive. Uh, I think the other aspect about it is we have isolated shipping outside the mainstream. They're not in ports anymore like they used to be. You know, you don't see a cargo ship offloading at the docks in New York City. It's at a terminal over in New Jersey, which, by the way, you cannot get on to save your life because the security is such that you can't get on there. And so we really isolated it. So it's not in the mainstream. People take for granted uh, the fact that the cargo is moving. I think that's one of the other things that caught everyone's mind all of a sudden. It's like when all of a sudden COVID hit and, and, and supply chain all of a sudden changed, everyone was became aware. And then you had a series of events that have accelerated this ever given getting stuck in the Suez, the shutdown of ports, uh, you name it. I, I think every time it's happened, everyone's like, oh, wow, you know, we're really dependent on shipping <laughs> in a way we didn't think was was possible. And I, I think on the finance side, the other aspect has been that shipping tends not to be a great short-term investment, but it's a better long-term investment. And, you know, if you look at, at, at the, the big container companies in the 2010s, man, you know, it's, 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 we made profit one year, we lost money, we made profit loss. It, it, it wasn't great. Now all of a sudden everybody sees, oh, massive profit. It, it's, it's, I want to be investing in this. And that's what shipping tends to be. It, it, if you get in at the right time for a short period of time, you can make a lot of money. But a lot of people don't like to invest for the long-term. They don't like to do those 20, 30, year investments. And that that's I think that's been the problem with shipping too is is how do you capture that? We see it more in like the bulk commodity market tankers and bulkers where you can make a lot of money, but now they're seeing it in containers and that has a lot to do also with the consolidation of the shipping lines, the alliances, the mega ships. Uh you know, the the environment has changed now that the container market is much more attractive to people. But again, you still have some companies that aren't in public 
exchange, you know, MSE is, is, is family owned. So, you know, you have these very unique, you know, kind of personally owned shipping lines that are massive in size. No, but it's so true. And I also think like some people could say, why does it matter? But I think it matters on a lot of parameters. Like just imagine the talent pool, because if you meet a smart driven person in the US, he will tend or she will tend to be more focused on space probably because the inspiration is there. The narrative is there. While in the ocean, it could be like you completely blank. You don't even know who, who who's running these giant companies. Right. You know, and I think it's so true. I mean, when you look at the size of companies like Maersk and MSC and HopHog and, and ONE and, and all, all the big ones, you know, th- those are not names you tend to see. You know, you don't see SCOAs out there talking all the time when you should. I mean, those are the people I want to hear talking because those are the CEOs who know what's going on. They can give you a great insight. And unfortunately, you have to find them buried in small stories on financial pages and financial stories. They're the ones who really should be talking all the time because they have that insight and that knowledge. But again, they're not as big as, you know, a Tim Cook from Apple. You know, we, we just don't tend to see them as much. Yet, if you look at the big container companies, they're making more than the Facebook you know, Apple, all the big you know, Netflix, you know, all the big Google together right now. And so it's like, why are these nine CEOs of these these huge container companies not out there being focused upon and, and talking about it? Because and again, same thing with the container, with the uh, cruise lines, with Carnival, with Norwegian, with uh, Royal Caribbean. Those are massive businesses that have had to deal with a huge setback due to COVID. And yet they've been able to fairly well handle it and they're coming out the other side right now. If you also take the operation and being in global trade, do you also, is it fair to say, if we're going to be blunt, that there is a big gray area sometimes loading in this cargo so some people just stay away from the media because they don't want attention on it? Or is that not true at all? No, I, I think it is. Again, I go back to the issue of the problems associated. When they get into a disaster or an issue, they really don't want to have their face associated with the disaster. You know, you know, back back in the 70s and 80s, when we had all these tanker accidents that happened, you know, there were seven big companies that did all the tankers, you know, those seven sisters, you know, but, you know, Amico and Exxon found out it was a really bad idea to have your name on the side of a ship. Because when they have those accidents, the protests are at the local gas stations, you know, you know, all of a sudden a locally owned gas station is being picketed because Exxon Valdez went ashore and killed seals. And, you know, all of a sudden they realize we got to back away. We don't want to be the face of this. And even though, again, the industry is much safer, it's much more efficient, and it's doing more than ever before, we still see that. They, they, they really don't want to get that kind of attention associated with them, which I think, again, is I think, you know, and you, and you read all the trade journals and you look at everybody who does it, they will always say, it's like, I, I don't want to talk to the public relations people. I don't want to read your news release. I need to talk to someone who can say something and they won't come out and say it. And I, th- I think they miss on it. For example, in the United States, there's, there's a big push against the big nine container companies right now. The president mentioned it in the State of the Union address. He called them cartels. There's investigations that are being launched against them for antitrust issues. And I will argue that the World Shipping Council, which is the lobby group that represents those companies, all those companies in the United States, have failed, absolutely failed to talk about the fact that during the, the height of COVID, they kept ships moving. They never stopped. They were able to keep the world supplied when everything else was shutting down. And again, I think they miss 
that opportunity, instead of being the target for attacks, they should be sitting there saying, Hey, we kept everything going. We even, you know, even when our crews couldn't get off the ships for months at a time, we were able to keep the efficiency of the world economy going. And I, again, I, I think it's a tone deaf nature that they have toward how to talk to the public to get the public on their side. They're so busy talking to business and, and government, they tend to forget the role that the public has in influencing all this. So true. But we need to talk about your YouTube channel because, I mean, I, uh, what's the story behind? How did you start producing videos? Was it like one moment that sparked it? And tell us a bit about how you have created this huge community and basically giving people an update in the shipping market. Well, I appreciate that, Christopher. But, you know, what was very funny is, is again, I was an academic. And so I, I was doing presentations and papers as, as historical all the time. And in 2008, I started teaching a course at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy on maritime industry policy and got me really interested. I got ingrained with a lot of people in the industry. I followed it all the time. And I had the opportunity to start writing some pieces for G-Captain, which is an online maritime site. And in March of, 2000, of 2021, uh, Evergiven went ashore in the Suez. And Evergiven went ashore in the Suez and BBC contacted G-Captain. They asked the CEO, John Conrad, if he wanted to come on and talk about it. Now, we know ships go aground in the Suez a lot. It, it, it's not an unusual thing. But I don't think we really appreciated how big Evergiven was and the unique situation that she represented. So I went on BBC World and uh, I had an opportunity to do a talk. And again, I'm a historian. Uh, I do broadcasts. Uh, I've done these 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 elements, and I had sailed. I've done industry policy, so I brought a lot together into one person. And 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 the BBC said, "Well, that was a great broadcast. We appreciate it." And you know, you go on one of those BBC broadcasts, you have maybe a minute, two minutes, maybe five minutes tops, and there was more I wanted to say. And I had a YouTube channel. I had a grand total of 300 subscribers uh, at the time. And I had three views the day before Evergiven went ashore. And I decided to do a video for about an hour just on Evergiven. You know, just let me let me talk about Evergiven. I posted it and that got 3000 views. And, 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 you know, now a year later, I got 43,000 subscribers and four and a half million views. So I, I, I think. It, it filled a void in shipping that was not there. And again, as a historian, I'm, I'm unique because I take that 50,000 foot view of the issue. You know, I don't kind of get you know, sometimes I'll zoom in on an issue and talk about it. But one of the things I like to do is be able to contextualize what a very complex amount of shipping, make it understandable to the common people who maybe are not interested in it. But at the same time, it has interest for those who are in the industry. And, you know, it, it's just kind of grown since then. It's weird. It's just I, I'm not used to getting attention like this. It's funny. You know, I go and I teach a class and I teach 30 students who could care less. Yet I could post a video on a topic and get 10,000 views and uh, get called by congressmen and senators. And, and, and it's weird. It's just it, it's a strange element that I'm being cited and, and told I'm an influencer, which I don't think I am. I think I'm just a historian, former merchant mariner, and somebody who can, you know, just take some stories, piece them together and make people understand why, why, why is there no diesel fuel in, 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 in New York right now? Well, it, you know, and we explain what the shipping issue deals with that. So I, I appreciate you bringing it up, but you know, uh, my channel is called what's going on with shipping. Well, people definitely have to check it out. If you could bring on a guest, anyone you could, who would you invite up to your show? You know, it's funny because I've had guests on and, and, and the guests I like the best 
are not the CEOs or the, or, or the president, but I like people who are the workers, you know, the people who that, you know, the, the people who are doing the, the work, those mid-level people, because I think they, they bring the most innovative aspect to it. You know, I, I had a crane operator come on and just talk about his day. You know, what, what do you do when you when you go to a, a you know, work one of these uh, ship to shore cranes? You know, what's that day like? You know, because uh, you know, I think that's a really interesting aspect because we've all seen it and, and we're, we're kind of queried by it, you know, because when you get the, the big people on, they want to they have an agenda. They want to talk about things, which is great. I understand that. But there are great podcasts that do that. You know, uh, Lena's podcast is great for that. She's get these, she gets these huge names of people to come on board. And I, I think the shipping podcast covers that. I want to cover more of that. You know, I had a second mate, you know, someone who's, who's, you know, the mid-level on the ship. It's like, okay, what is, what's it like? And, and what do you do? What's your day like? And, and, and how does it involve? So I, I enjoy getting those type of people on board. I'm going to get the, for example, the CEO of the port of Baltimore on board. And even though he's a CEO, he he's a mid-level port. He's not a big port. It's not Los Angeles. It's not New York. It's Baltimore. And how do you make Baltimore become a very competitive port all of a sudden? And, you know, th- those are the people I love to get on people who are really interested, p- people who have a, a passion and more importantly, can convey a message and talk about it. You know, you got to be very careful, you know, uh, doing your, your podcast, you can get people on who can talk and, and man, they just can't reach out and make things understandable to people. So it, it's a skill to try to find it. And you do a great job with that. No, but it's so important. I think also it's a big lesson that sometimes you just want to talk to the person closest to the problem, not the person who has the fanciest title, right? Because sometimes people closest to the problem has the best ideas. Uh, I want to talk about two subjects. I want to start with um, yards and then go over to the US role. But just looking at the yards, because if someone isn't in the shipping industry, it seems strange that basically three countries run the whole show creating new ships. And that has massive consequences. What's the sort of the short story on how we ended up only seeing China, Korea, and Japan building these vessels? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. So, you know, you're talking about 93% of all the world shipping built in those three countries. You know, the Philippines builds 1%, and then the rest of the world divvy up the rest of the 6% with no country building more than a percent. So, you know, it's consolidation and it's something we've seen throughout the shipping industry in, in almost all sectors. You've seen it happen in containers. You've seen it happen in the passenger liners. You've seen it happen in ports and you've seen it happen in shipbuilding. And, you know, one of the reasons is economy of scale. It's just more efficient and effective to build more ships. You know, in the United States, there's a lot of criticism because you can build a container ship over at this port. And if you build one in the United States, it's more expensive and it's much smaller. And, you know, one of the reasons that is, is, you know, in the US, where we've we just built like two container ships recently and they're really expensive, but it goes to the idea of, of buying a car. You know, if, if I want to go buy a Ford F-150, you know, if I buy it from the dealership, it's going to cost me X amount of money. If I'm going to build a Ford F-150 myself and manufacture the parts, it's going to cost me a lot more. And, and what you want is ships coming off an assembly line. They're cheaper. The economy of scale, when you're building eight ships, that is much more efficient than building one or two. If you build one ship, it's a, it's a work of art. You know, it's 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 really unique. What Japan, Korea, and China have done is really embrace the policies that were used. I go back to that World War II analogy of prefabrication, mass production. Let's go ahead and and pump ships off almost like Lego blocks and 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 build them in pieces, modularization, 
build, you know, what, what the shipyards become are assembly areas. You're just putting the pieces together. You're not fabricating too much. And Japan, Korea, and China embraced that. And more importantly, the government supported it. There was a lot of uh, um, uh, investor in that in terms of either subsidies or, or benefits for the shipyards. And, you know, there's very innovative ways of ownership. Japan, for example, has a very unique ownership program where they'll build ships, but they may own two of them and lease them to a company so they get some money from them. Uh, Korea and, and China, you know, China for a long time, you build a ship in China in the 1990s and well, it would be, you know, you would have a lot of issues with it. But by the 2000s, they were better. And by the 2010s, they're top of the line there. I mean, they're, they're, they're the model you want. And more importantly too, they're designing ships for service lives of 15 to 20 years. They're designed to be recycled. They're designed so that the technology can be just rolled around as opposed to ships maybe built in the U S and Europe in the seventies and eighties, which much thicker hulls, you know, designed for longer service lives. And so there's a big mentality about it. And I think those countries in particularly have embraced the idea that this is a key component for them. One of the other things too, is if you look at those three countries, Japan, Korea, and China, they're building ships, commercial ships right alongside Navy ships. So they have large navies and they're going out and getting other companies to come in and build them. You know, Denmark, classic example, Maersk built all their ships at Odense in Denmark for years and years and years. But then Daewoo and, and, and Hyundai in, in Korea made them an offer. It's like, we can build them cheaper. We can, we can cut your costs and build you good ships at a much lower price. And what we saw was a lot of that happening. We're seeing it right now in China with the building of uh, passenger liners, you know, uh, ship line, uh, uh, shipyards like uh, Fincantieri, SDX, they got to be worried that that's going to go overseas because, you know, one of the things we saw was shipyards. Okay, we're not going to build all ships. We're going to specialize in certain areas. We're going to build cruise ships. Well, if China starts doing that or if LNG carriers are being built in Korea, then they're going to be able to get that aspect of the market. And obviously, it's a big issue because the concern that can be raised is maybe not a general, you know, one of the fears is a war between China and the United States. But my concern is more of a war in East Asia is, is those countries do not like each other. Typically there's a long history between all of them. And, you know, if you get a Korea, China war, a Japan, China war, or something like that, that could disrupt global ship construction. And we, we've seen it in the past where certain nations control large sectors of the economy. The British did it for a long time. Uh, they, 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 monopolized ocean shipping for a long time. And now we see it's East Asia that's that's really in the driver's seat. If you had to create a new shipyard nation, which country would you bet on and how would you do it? Because I guess it's very much or related to the government, of course, but is the US the only potential country who could come up to that scale or could you figure out something in Brazil, Europe, Portugal? Because this has to be sort of like, you need to have a great policy, right? Because sometimes... Is that going to be, is, is it about profitability or security? Because if you do this operation, you also get, you know, uh, competence in a very important industry, which can get relevant in uncertain and unstable times. Yeah, no, I think I think a country like Brazil or in the Caribbean somewhere, you can you can develop that. I think that's that's a, it, it's really hard to do in, for example, in the United States for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is okay, you need to get land close to water. And that's a tough one. Because where are you going to build the shipyard? You know, because you got to build it close to a population center because you need workers. And it, it, it and the other problem you have is it's a huge investment 
upfront with very little return until much later. And, and you have to have enough shipbuilding down, down the, the, the lane to do it. And that's always been the problem in investment in shipping, whether it's a shipyard or a ship company, you know, buy a ship. Okay. I'm going to buy a ship. Well, you can build a new one. That's two, three years till you start making money, you know, and even then you got to be guaranteed cargo and routes. And so I, you know, I think areas like Africa and, and South America are an interesting one for the creation of it. But plus, you know, where are the resources? Where's the, the machinery? Again, today, one of the things that we're seeing is how much shipyards today are assembly areas. They're not really building a ship. You know, they're not they're not doing the steel. They're not building the engines there. Everything's being freighted in or, or shipped in and then assembled. And so, you know, you have to have be on good routes. You got to be very advantageous to be able to get in there. And you got to have a good workforce, a workforce that can be trained and skilled. You know, I'm always interested when you go to the different yards in Japan, for example, the Jap- Japanese shipyards to me are master craftsmen. They, they know every aspect of it. Go to a Korean shipyard. The person working in the Korean shipyard knows what they're doing. That's it. They don't know anything else about the rest of the, the thing. They're trained on one thing and they're going to do the one thing and do it well. And, you know, that's an interesting, you know, what's your philosophy on, on how you want to do it? Obviously, wage is a problem because you have to pay for skilled, you know, uh, welding and, and, and fine machinery. And as ships become more complicated, you need that more tech involved in it. So, you know, I think the the opening up in areas like Brazil, for example, is always an interesting one because I think they have the resources. I think that there, there's a growing need for it. If you look at the amount of shipping that comes out of South America right now, there, there are potential areas for it. The, the problem you have is how much money China keeps tossing at this issue. And, we, you know, there was just a story out about Germany sitting there saying, listen, we need to get shipbuilding back. However, it's almost impossible to compete against China for the following reasons. They're not making profits. It's state owned. There's huge subsidies involved. You know, there was a report that came out a few years ago that, you know, from 2010 to 2018, the Chinese threw 132 billion into shipbuilding and into just subsidies and just subsidizing their shipbuilding industry because they want to corner the market in certain areas, which they have. I mean, I mean, there's no denying the fact that that's what they've done. And we've seen it happen in the shipping industry before. And the, the one big variable I'll tell you is this, Christopher, is technology right now. That's the big variable. If with, with fuel and engines, because of the push by IMO to go you know, 50% decarbonization by 2050, which I think is going to change. They're going to go further. You know, whoever comes up with the new technology, whoever gets their handle on that, whoever has the, the, the access to the fuel, that's going to be the technology game changer that's going to be akin to containerization, the shift from sail to steam in the future. Because everybody's looking for what that technology is. Is it hybrid? Is it hydrogen? Is it is it fusion power? I don't know. But whoever comes up with it, they're going to be in a big advantage. And if they can capitalize on it, they can shift the entire industry. So, so true. And talking about entrepreneurial spirit, obviously, U.S. has the track record, has the people. If you look at people like Elon Musk, they love big problems. So just taking giving us the U.S. lenses what are U.S. thinking about this? Or is this not going to work in U.S.? Because I guess it's heavily linked to the Navy as well. So what's the U.S. lenses on these issues and also the opportunities? Well, you know, I, I think the U.S. has a big problem with this. I, I, think, I think because, you know, in, in many 
nations, the the concept of 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 the ocean and sea power is kind of linked together. It's navy and commercial. In the U.S., it's not. It it, it bifurcated. It's split. It, it really isn't. The navy will talk about we need shipping and commercial shipping, but they do very little to to say anything about it. I think in in countries like China, Japan, Korea, it's much more. The Chinese are the best example of that. If you look at Belt and Road, this is not China trying to militarily take over the world. They're commercially trying to ingrain resources and and alternative routes. They're, they're very mercantilistic, not capitalistic. They're looking at securing key areas. And, and I think the U.S. Is, is, has a kind of a, a lack of comprehension of that. They're not really understanding that idea. We have talked about free trade. And, and, and listen, the world has benefited greatly from free trade. You know, there's some great books written, uh, written recently, Bruce Jones writing about To Rule the Waves, where the U.S. Navy and, and its allied Navy secure the ocean. And so ships can sail anywhere at any time. And, and you know, we've all benefited from global trade. But there, there's that potential for trade to be blocked, to be impacted. And, you know, as, as great power competition maybe is on the rise again, as you see Russia and China and other nations come up, uh, one of the things that we've seen is it doesn't take a lot to disrupt global trade. It just takes a few things. We're seeing it right now with, with the Black Sea and the disruption of wheat coming out of Ukraine, for example. And so I think a lot of nations need to be thinking more economically than just purely military. And that's the problem with the U.S. The U.S. tends to think guns. They don't think, tend to think butter, you know, and, and so they, they miss out on that uh, element right there. I think in Europe, there, there's big pushes, realization about this. You know, they're seeing their infrastructure, their, their base being worn away, that there's potential there for issues. And even the big container liners, you know, the big shipping firms, which have a very European slant to them, Hophog and Maersk and CMA, CGM and MSC, they're becoming more entities onto themselves. You know, shipping companies are executing foreign policy today. When Maersk and those big companies basically, you know, self-sanction Russia, you know, hey, we're going to stop going in these ports. So when we're, we're going to execute a foreign policy, that's, you know, Dutch and British East India Company type stuff. That's, you know, you're, you're, you're executing a foreign, it's not just an economic policy, it's a foreign policy, because now you're, you're impacting this nation's ability to survive. And what happens when companies start doing that to other things? You know, the U.S. is, you know, I, you know, being a good American, but I'll tell you, we're not always the most loved person in the world. And, and we tend to do things that anger some people sometimes, even though we think we're always right. And, you know, what happens if all of a sudden a company sits there and says, you know what, we're going to stop trading with you because guess what? You're not the biggest trading entity on the planet anymore. That Europe to Asia route is maybe bigger than the Asia to the United States route. What kind of uh, impact does that have? And I think that's why it's so important to have this knowledge of the commercial background to it. But what would make you optimistic for from the U.S. perspective? Is it sort of that you get it up to the presidential level or you get the big mobilization, big vision, strategies? What could change your mind about sort of the U.S. role going forward? I, I think, you know, one of the things that's happened in the past with the U.S. is is a couple of things. Again, technology. I think the technology change, if the U.S. can get it on into the technology change for shipping, that gives it a big advantage. And then all of a sudden that can be the reset 
that's needed. I think there needs to be a new mindset in terms of, of the awareness. I think more people are aware today than ever before of the intricacies of shipping and why is it important. And, you know, I think when all of a sudden people realize that our, you know, back in 1920, the U.S. passed this very seminal piece of legislation called the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. It's known as the Jones Act. And what most people think is it deals with coastal trade, but in true, it was a huge national maritime strategy. It was an idea that we want U.S. shipbuilding. We want ships on U.S. routes, on international routes and coastal routes. And it's not that we wanted to carry 100%. You can't do that. That's physically impossible. But what you want is a, a, a system where you have some presence on there. And I would argue that's what the Chinese have done with Belt and Road. This is what they've done. It's like, we're going to be sure that there's Chinese presence out there. We're going to make sure we have some access to, if, if Australia cuts us off from ore, we can get ore from Brazil, or we can get it from Africa, or we can get it from Canada. And I, I think that's what needs to be done. Unfortunately, what we have done is minimize the role of maritime. We've decreased it over time because again, it's technology. What the, the sexy thing is air and space. And air and space is great. It's fantastic. If you look at what can be hauled by air, it's impressive. But in truth, you can't match the tonnage for shipping. We still haven't gotten past the fact that you need big boats to haul most of our cargo around the world. And I, I think that issue is, is, is forefront. There's very few issues that have bipartisan Republican Democratic support in the United States. One of them is shipbuilding and ship construction. And because I think they see it, it has not just an economic issue, but it has a national security issue. And I, I think it's starting to take I like to think it's starting to take effect that there's more acknowledgement of it. We're seeing it with the introduction of an Ocean Shipping Reform Act. I, my problem with that is I think they're trying to put a Band-Aid on a problem. They don't quite understand the complexity of the problem. And you know, I think education is the big one. We don't do a great job educating people about this. And I think that's one of the issues we need to do. So there's, there's potential for the U.S. to do it. There's potential for Europe to do it. There's potential for many countries to do it. The problem is, if you look at where China was 30 years ago, no one would have said China would be one, you know, have the largest shipping company in the world with Costco and be as influential as they are. It's just a question of national will. So true. Just two short questions left. Uh, we have many viewers who are young and really want to have a career in the maritime space. What do, what do you say to people who come up to you and ask you for advice? Do you give general advice to people who really want to make an exciting career in shipping or the maritime industry? Yeah. You know, one of the things I tell them is there's a lot of different areas. It's one of the best things about the maritime industry. You know, I, I, I teach at a college in central North Carolina, you know, our, our mascot's a camel. So it's the furthest away from a ship as you can get. And yet I tell people all the time, but shipping is, is a great potential. It doesn't matter what field you're going into. You know, there are ports up and along the East coast that are growing and developing the port of Savannah in Georgia is one of the fastest growing ports in the United States. And so there, there there's an area in there for everybody. Everybody, whether you're a business technology, uh, 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 even like a history guy like me, I tell my historians what, what makes his, historians great is they look at big pictures. They look at all these elements and can make decisions. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of potential. And the other aspect is 
it's not just in your country, it's it's international. You know, a lot of shipping firms have offices all around the world. And if you're willing to travel and go, take that job for a few years, go, you know, work in a port in in maybe over, you know, in Asia, in Africa or South America, come back, put you in a really good position. Uh, one of the biggest areas for shipping, obviously, is security, cybersecurity is 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 such a paramount issue right now. Uh, you know, uh, the finance side, the business side, there, there's so many areas that that are really uh, developing for shipping. I, I think it's one of the big growth markets. It gets you in an international business community with lots of opportunities around the world. So true. And just the last question, given that you love history, I'm, I guess you read quite a few books. What's your top three or top five favorite books on shipping for people who really want to dive into these topics? So uh, one of the books I love is a book called The Shipping Man, which is a novel, uh, which is a, a great book. And then the author's name is escaping me. I apologize. But uh, he did a trilogy of books. And it's great because it, it, it's a novel, but it really gives you the intricacies of modern shipping, what it means to be a ship owner, what it means to do the financing. You know, I can teach you all about financing a ship and you'll be asleep in no time. And it's just it, it, it's it's terrible. But when you dramatize it, I, I, I love that book a lot. Uh, we mentioned it before, Mark Levinson's The Box, I think is a great one. Uh, I, I think that one really captures how a technology flips an entire industry on its ears. Uh, I think that one, more than anything else, captures the big change that takes place. I mean, there's so many, you know, how do you standardize a shipping container? It's not easy. What, what, how long should it be? 10, 20, 40? We don't know. You know, and you got to come up uh, with these ideas and the hurdles uh, associated with it. And then I apologize for my Americanness on this, but uh, there's a book called uh, uh, The Way of the Ship, which details the history of the American maritime environment, which I think is a really interesting one written by Alex Rowland. Uh, it covers not just the ocean, but the inland waterways, which I think is really important is, is how does maritime influence everything. And, and the favorite thing about that book is he has like five themes that run through the book. So he talks about, you know, government policy. He talks about technology. He talks about economics. Uh, he talks about social issues. He talks about labor issues. So there's all these elements that are in there and, and they all come together. And he has these chapters that are almost like vignettes that look at individual, maybe people or a technology or a topic. And it kind of weaves you through almost 400 years of American history, but with a maritime slant to it. And if I could put one more out there, I'm going to throw one more out there because I just thought about it is a good buddy of mine by the name of Lincoln Payne wrote a book called Sea and Civilization, which is a maritime history of the world, which is a massive book. It's huge, but probably the best book I can think of out there that really captures the uh, maritime history of the world. I mean, everything from the Phoenicians to, you know, the creation of the modern cruise ship. And uh, it, it's just a great book that gives you that maritime history of the world and how connected we are. I can give you way more, Christopher, but I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> this is the perfect starting point. Let's see if we do another one. Then we get some more books coming up. But uh, that was a perfect ending. Thank you so much for taking the time to jump on. It was a pleasure having you on. Well, I appreciate the offer and I appreciate uh, being able to talk to you today. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode 
was produced by William Fransen.